the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, if you play Operation with Victor Frankenstein, the results may shock you. They did me. Lion vs. Hyena in the Hip-Hop Battle of the Ages, and the latest entry in our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. We have a most excellent interview with the editor and several of the authors of stories in a great new collection out from Bain, Operation Arcana, or Arcana, depending on whether you pronounce it right or not. David F. Sherrat hosts. David is, incidentally, the editor of a Bain series that is debuting in June, the year's best military science fiction and space opera. So David is rapidly becoming the go-to podcast co-host when we discuss short story collections, since he reads literally everything in the field. Hey, this time, too, we have a special treat from David Drake. Dave stopped by the Bain office, and we persuaded him to read a poem for us. And since it's David Drake, he thought he might read a poem by a classical Roman author in Latin, and then read his translation for it. He picked out a piece by the Roman poet Marshall, who was doing his thing during the first century A.D. We also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. It's read by Bronson Pinchot. Now here's the news. We have some excellent free fiction and non-fiction on the Bain.com website this month. Our free short story is Lion Country by author Whit Williams. This is, I have to tell you, a really good science fiction story. If you are an EMT or first responder type, I think you'll find that Whit captures that feel in his character very well. And if you happen to think lions would make pretty good candidates for intelligence uplifts in the future... Well, maybe you better get another thing coming along. Also on the Bain.com homepage is the incredibly small, exploring the cosmically huge nanotechnology to enable future space probes. This is written by nanotech expert Joseph E. Meany. Joe discusses the way nanotech is being used and will be used for space exploration and astronomy. Cool stuff. Lion Country and the incredibly small, exploring the cosmically huge, are now at Bain.com. Also, both will be entries in our free stories and free nonfiction ebook anthologies, which are always available at BainEbooks.com. When we take the website story or article down to make way for the next, we add those that we've taken down to these collections, so all of the past great Bain.com short stories and nonfiction pieces can be had, read, and ruminated over. Hi, it's David F. Shardarod. You're about to listen to a roundtable discussion on Operation Arcana with myself and some of the contributors to the anthology. I want to first apologize to Weston Oaks. Weston wrote a story called American Golem, which appears in Operation Arcana. Weston joined us for the discussion. However, due to some technical difficulties, we had to trim down some of his answers as they were uh, inaudible, and some of what remains can be a little bit difficult to understand. However, we do hope that you will listen to what he has to say. He's got some interesting insights. And again, I just want to apologize to Wes for the technical mishap. All right, enjoy the Bain Free Radio Hour discussion of Operation Arcana coming at you right now. Hi, I'm David F. Shryrod, and it's good to be back here on the Bain Free Radio Hour talking about another great short story anthology. This time we're discussing Operation Arcana. It's an all-new anthology of 16 stories of military fantasy. Here to discuss the book and military fantasy in general is the book's editor, John Joseph Adams. If you like science fiction, fantasy, or horror, and let's face it, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably do, then you've uh, undoubtedly heard of him or are familiar with his work. He's the series editor of Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy, as well as many other anthologies such as Wastelands, The Living Dead, The Apocalypse Triptych, and Armored, which came out a few years back from Maine. 
He's also the editor and publisher of the magazines Nightmare and the Hugo Award-winning Lightspeed, and is a producer for Wired's The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy podcast. John, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Also here is Weston Oaks. He is the author of 20 books, most recently Seal Team 666 and its sequel Age of Blood. His first novel, Scarecrow Gods, won the Bram Stoker Award, and his short fiction has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize. He's had stories appear in comic books and magazines such as Cemetery Dance and Soldier of Fortune. And like many of the contributors to Operation Arcana, he is a military veteran himself with over 30 years of military service. Wes, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Tanya Huff is the author of the popular Blood Book series featuring Detective Vicki Nelson. That series was adapted for television as Blood Ties. Uh, she won the Constellation Award for her work on that television series and the Aurora Award for her novel, The Silvered. She's also the author of several other series, including the Valor series, which she's currently working on a new military space opera novel for. So we'll look forward to that. Tanya, welcome. Thanks for having me. All right. Mike Cole is the author of the military fantasy Shadow Ops series, which has been described as Black Hawk Down meets X-Men. The latest book in that series, Gemini Cell, came out just last month. His career has run the gamut from counterterrorism to cyber warfare to federal law enforcement. He's done three tours in Iraq and was recalled to serve during the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. His story, Weapons of the Earth, in Operation Arcana, is set in his Shadow Ops series, and we'll be asking him about it in just a little bit. Uh, Mike, good to have you on. Thanks for having me. And finally, joining us is Linda Nagata. She's the author of The Red, First Light, which was nominated for both the Nebula Award and the John W. Campbell Memorial Award. She's also won the Locus Award for Best First Novel for her book, The Boar Maker. She's won the, she won the Nebula for her novella, Goddesses, and that, incidentally, was the first online publication to win a Nebula. And she was a finalist for the Theodore Sturgeon Memorial Award. Her short stories have appeared in numerous publications, and I'm just going to give a little plug to something. Uh, she's got two stories in The Year's Best Military Science Fiction and Space Opera, uh, which is a book I edited, which is coming out in June from Bain. So uh, look for her in there, as well as some other great stuff. Uh, Linda, thanks for uh, being here. Pleasure to talk with you. Well, thanks for having me. All right, uh, John, I was going to start with you and then uh, anyone else if you want to jump in. Um, so this is a book of military fantasy, and I just wanted to kind of ask the obvious question, what is military fantasy? What makes it its own unique subgenre uh, that sets it apart from high fantasy or urban fantasy or what have you? What is it that makes it unique? Well, I think military fantasy is basically, you know, what it sounds like. I mean, it's fantasy stories that incorporate some aspect of the military uh, as a, you know, critical element of the story. Uh, so you think, I think of it sort of like in, in opposition to, to military science fiction or, or sort of not as, maybe not as opposition, but as a complement to military science fiction where, like, when you say the word military science fiction, I think most people, they have, an, you know, they have a sort of instinctive uh, understanding of what that is, you know, even if they haven't, uh, even if they're not too familiar with it, but like military fantasy, for some reason, um, seems like we have a harder time grappling with it. Um, even though we've undoubtedly seen uh, many examples of it um, over the course of our, our reading lives, um, may maybe not necessarily books that are 100% military fantasy, but we've certainly seen uh, great epic battles from like, you know, the Battle of Helden's Deep in, in Tolkien um, to you know, any of the, uh, you know, any of the other uh, great examples uh, throughout the, you know, there's uh, uh, Glenn Cook, uh, his, uh, most of his uh, Black Company novels are, are typically thought of as military fantasy or certainly have lots of battles in them. So, um, I mean, I think uh, any, any kind of fantasy that is very um, sort of centered around uh, military engagements and, and the soldiers that, that fight in them, I think classifies as a military fantasy. Authors, anyone have any thoughts on that? You want to jump in, or is that John pretty well summed it up? You think? I just want to. I want to. One thing I always say is, is that the the tendency. I, I I like that he framed the idea very very broadly in terms of military. Um, a military can be anything from a a war band uh, of guys fighting with with bronze tipped spears, where where the armies are going to draw up and just individuals are going to scrap, and then the armies are going to go home and 
and the, you can fill the amount of blood that's going to be shed into a single cup. Um, and it can also be fire teams that are operating in Afghanistan. Uh, two very, very different ways of fighting, but both nonetheless military. And I also want to emphasize that um, militaries and military engagements affect far, 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 far more non-combatants than they do mm -hmm. combatants. And therefore, the stories of refugees, the stories of prisoners, the stories of civilians that are waiting at home for loved ones are every bit as much military stories as the stories of the warfighters themselves. And I think it's one of the strengths of, of, uh, of the genre that, uh, that it looks at all sides of that. And one other author I wanted to call out is Naomi Novik who is um, mm -hmm. the author of the Temeraire series, in particular His Majesty's Dragon, as the, the one of listeners want to start with it, which is it's, it's the telling of the Napoleonic Wars from the position of, a, of, a, of an aerial corps captain who rides a dragon. Um, really, really great stuff and, and absolutely military fantasy in its own. All right, excellent. Um, John mentioned uh, military science fiction um, as sort of being a complement to military fantasy. The I mean, we're all used to science fiction and fantasy being lumped together, sort of. I just wonder, are there types of stories or different things do you think that military fantasy can do differently or do better than military science fiction? Or um, is it the same kind of stories with different set dressing? But um, I just wonder what your take on that would be, uh, whoever wants to jump in. Stories at heart have to be about people, or no one's going to want to read them. Um, the The type of military you're writing about, the fantasy, the science fiction, guns, swords, spears, are really only set dressing. Yeah, so it's the uh, it's the th sort of universal or maybe not universal, but personal human themes that are what's important. And, and whether you're using a fantasy story or a science fiction story to get that across, I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but that's maybe secondary. Anyone else have any thoughts on that or... Uh, I was going to say, uh, you know, well, uh, to the sort of cheeky answer to your question is, well, if you want to tell a story about uh, fighting dragons or something, is military fantasy certainly does that better typically than military science fiction because dragons don't really uh, work with science fiction so well. Although, you know, hey, some authors have tried. You know, Amy McCaffrey's trying to classify those those dragons as science fiction, you know. But, um, you know, or if you want to have magic or something, like, you know, that, that obviously works better in a fantasy context than a, than a science fictional context. But, uh, you know, um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think, uh, uh, I think I agree that, uh, it's, it's mostly a question of, of set dressing and, and, you know, the, the deeper, uh, issues, uh, that you, that your characters are dealing with is essentially going to be, uh, dictated by things other than whether it's science fiction or fantasy. So it's like if, if you're telling military focused stories, then, um, then, then likely you're going to be dealing with a lot of the same issues, whether the story is science fiction or fantasy. And, and that part is actually kind of irrelevant. It just depends. It just depends on what kind of, uh, a different spin do you want to put on your story? Like, you you know, do you want to put a science fiction spin? Do you want to put a fantasy spin? Um, I think military fantasy leaves you open to a lot more um, experimentation um, and um, sort of new roads because I think there's so much uh, military science fiction has been written over the years that um, if you want to do something new and different, it's a lot harder to come up with something that uh, we haven't seen before and yet is still familiar enough to feel like the military fantasy that is popular, you know, that, pe that you think people uh, would want to read. So um, I, I think that's one of the appeals for me as, of military fantasy is that it feels like it has uh, it, it, a lot of it's uh, still sort of ground that hasn't been tread yet. Um, and, uh, you know, at least, at least as a, as a coherent genre, like I was saying, we, we, we've seen bits of military fantasy in, you know, basically all of the classic, um, all of the classic fantasy novels over the course of, you know, the, the history of the genre. But, um, you know, uh, I, I think as a, as a genre, it's, it's as a subgenre itself, it still feels kind of new. And so there's a lot of ground that we haven't tried yet. Yeah. That leads nicely into another question I was going to ask, which is that this does seem to be on the rise and gaining in popularity. I talked oh, a month or two ago to, uh, Brian Thomas Schmidt, Jennifer Brozick, they did an anthology for Bain called Shattered Shields, which was um, different than this one, but military fantasy nonetheless. And we just seem to be hearing more about this. And I wonder, maybe you hit on this, maybe science, military science fiction is feeling crowded and so people are trying a different tack. But uh, I wondered if anyone else had any thoughts on wh what is, uh, why is this genre or subgenre kind of catching on and gaining popularity now? Part of the problem, IP, is right now it's getting really difficult to write military science fiction because 
the current military is doing so many things that read like science fiction. Um, I've been I spent this afternoon doing some research on a, on a, the military science fiction I'm currently writing, and I'm I'm having to I'm have, having to dial back things that can actually happen because they're making the plot points too too difficult. So when you go to fantasy. You can, you can actually explore things without coming up against the fact that, yes, but we can actually do this. And in fact, it would be easier if we did this, which, by the way, can be done sort of thing. And in fantasy, you've, you've got more freedom. Uh, you're not constrained by the reality that um, science and technology are, are, as often happens, making huge strides uh, as far as military technology is concerned. Yeah, I was just going to say that I wonder, too, if it isn't um, just partly a matter of definition, because given the, the very broad definition of military fantasy that's used in this um, anthology and that we've talked about so far, these stories have been written pretty much forever. But I think it's just recently that I hear people referring very specifically to military fantasy. I think we're also well, living in a way, through... you could call both the Odyssey and the Iliad military fantasy. Mm -hmm. they, well, not the Odyssey, oh, yeah. but the Iliad involves a military campaign with gods actively uh, intervening. I think we're also living through a, a revolution in the military, um, in that we're really seeing the the, the a true tectonic shift from um, from Clausewitzian warfare into insurgent sort of I don't know what we call fifth generation warfare among military intellectuals and you know the, the the landscape like you know how you know confused and discombobulated the world can feel because of the of the tectonic rise in technology we're all overwhelmed we get we got used to twitter and facebook and now we got to grapple with Ello and sue and, and all this new stuff that's coming along well those same kinds of incredibly fast accelerations in military doctrine and how militaries engage is happening and uh at the same time and one of the ways that people come to grips with big changes in society is they write stories about it and they, and, it, and they, they, they discuss it in pop culture and they deal with it at a remove. And I think that, you know, we've been since 9-11, a, a nation that has been in the grip of, I mean, people would say at war, but the truth is we've been in, in the grip of a, of a fierce, fierce counterinsurgent operation on, on multiple fronts. And that really, really has an effect. It has an effect on culture and it has an effect on art. And, and you're seeing that reflection somewhat now. Now, is that because a counterinsurgent war is 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 more mentally what we equate to a fantasy war? Because to a, a an SF war, we sort of are we kind of hark back to uh, the sort of things that that Heinlein wrote about, and and we can't make that fit the current paradigm. I, no, I don't. I don't think that's the case. I think that, I think, I mean, if anything, I think in the fantasy, at least that I've read, uh, you don't see a lot of the idea of an insurgency portrayed. Uh, I'm just trying to think of military science fiction examples. And I think of my favorite military science fiction authors, and I, Jack Campbell and, and uh, Robert Buechner. Like, there's really not a whole lot of insurgency going on. In those places, you see a lot of big states. And when I think of the, of the bugs in Starship Troopers, they're sort of a, a huge and, and monolithic enemy that looks you know, you can clearly define it. You can clearly find it. Um, the, the, it. It's very, very different from what we're experiencing in real life. I was, I was thinking more about the idea of dealing with discomfort. I think of like Alan Moore's V for Vendetta, uh, for example, as sort of a way that was. I know. I mean, I've read in interviews with Moore. That was a way of, of Alan Moore to grapple with, you know, Thatcherism in England. Um, and I know a lot of science fiction and fantasy authors have used their art as a way to grapple with you know, concepts that are that are troubling them or challenging them. And I think that this may uh, this may be a symptom of that. All very good points. Now going from the the macro of the genre of military fantasy to the book. Um, John, uh, I just wondered, you wrote a little bit in your introduction about how this idea came to you and how this came about. But I just wonder if you could just briefly talk about uh, sort of the genesis of this book and uh, and how it came to be uh, how it came to be published. And I'm holding it in my hand now. Uh, sure. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, um, essentially, so, I, you know, you mentioned I did this book Armored for Bane a couple of years ago and um, sort of the initial genesis of it was 
mostly just like I, I had done this arm, this book Armored, which is about power armor and so essentially military fantasy, um, and and then or I mean military science fiction, and then um, sure. you know Bain had an option on my next military anthology or militaristic you know sort of military oriented science fiction or fantasy book, and so I was thinking about that and I was thinking about well what else could I try next because I was like well I you know I sold some other books to other places and it's like well let me let me try to sell another book to Bain and let me I was trying to come up with a, an idea. And I thought, well, um, I already did a military science fiction book for them. Maybe I could try doing something on the fantasy side. And then when I was trying to figure out, like, well, what to do with that, I just, I, I thought, well, well, you know, I've seen so many military science fiction things. Maybe I tried to do military fantasy. And um, it was important to me to, to, to do it um, uh, so that it was very free form uh, military fantasy. So, like, uh, essentially, I just wanted the book to put equal emphasis on the terms military and fantasy, and th those were my only restrictions, basically. So, like, I didn't want it to only be, you know, secondary world fantasy, so, like, sort of Tolkien-esque uh, battles, that kind of thing. I mean, I love that kind of stuff, and I wanted to include some of that, but I also wanted to get, um, you know, stories like Wes's story, which takes place in Afghanistan in contemporary times, you know, and um, I, I really wanted to have that sort of um, – that range, and so I, and, I, and the anthology did do that. So um, I mean, so that's really where the uh, idea came from, and uh, and you know just and and otherwise just from my love of of those sort of epic type of battles that that I've read, you know, and from you know like I said, like starting with Tolkien and and you know George R. R. Martin and all that. So like I, actually a lot of a lot of my desire to do this did come from that sort of epic fantasy type of battle, but. Um, I also love the idea of taking it to the, you know, modern day and, and having, you know, contemporary soldiers uh, battling uh, demons and stuff like that. Uh, Tony, let's talk about your story. Uh, it's called Steel Ships. And um, we were talking about, in contrast, military fantasy, military science fiction, and sort of the, um, the hardline science fiction people will often complain about fantasy because they say magic makes things too easy. Um, and, but in your story, one thing I liked is that the mages, they're, they're very far from all powerful. Um, they, it, all, I, the main character sort of has a lot of eye rolling, uh, to do toward them. And, um, also the magic seemed to be very organic and it played by a, a very like, um, almost felt almost like physics to me. It played by a very like strict set of rules. And, um, I just thought if you could maybe talk about that, how you talked about, military science fiction being actually having the opposite problem for you're having is that it's, it's so advanced even now that it's difficult to write. Um, how was coming up with this magical system and integrating that in? How important is that? And how do you go about doing that? I guess is the question. Well, I'd like to start by saying is that the traditional SF people who consider uh, that their criticism of fantasy is that magic makes everything too easy is that they're reading the wrong fantasies. They're they're I mean, mm -hmm. Following Sturgeon's Law, and the 90% of everything is crap. Um, they're reading the 90%. Um, I would suggest that nobody who is part of this writes the kind of fantasy where magic makes everything too easy. Um, I myself, firm believer in Newton's Third Law, that you know, for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. And and so when I'm setting up a magic system, I have to consider the cost of the magic. Um, it's so my my people, particularly in Steel Ships, which is the story in this anthology, which by the way, John came up with the title for. My title was terrible. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I'm terrible with titles, so I was very thankful that John came up with something that we were both happy with. Is in this, they're sort of the mages are the essentially they're the military R and D. They're 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 Tony Stark with wands instead of robots. <laughs> they they're they're creating. You said physics. I I always thought more chemistry than physics because what they what they're doing is 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 creating in 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 this particular story they're creating um, uh, mines essentially that contact mines um, that are, they're put onto the ships. And in the first story that I wrote with these in this particular in this particular uh, mythos, they were creating depth charges. And it's essentially, it's, it's, it's magic. The spell is, is the chemical component released uh, because of, of, a, of a physical thing being done by the people. For me, the, for me, like I said before, the story has to be about people. So the magic has to support the people as opposed to the other way around, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, um, and, and also... <laughs> 
The, uh, there's, no, there's not a lot of them. I mean, when you, can, when you take, into, uh, take into consideration that this is a rare talent, you're going to have a very limited number of mages so that you can't actually have the mages moving in and, 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 and taking everything over. And also, that's like, back to my original point, that's like a really boring story. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it, it, would be, it would be an extremely... Lord of the Rings would be an extremely short book if Gandalf went, ah. Oh, I feel Sauron rising in the east. Zap. <laughs> <laughs> well, that took care of that. Let's have tea and another smoke. So, for, for me, it's 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 it really is just a case of equal, you know, opposite reaction. Things have to be paid for. There have to be consequences. Yeah, excellent. Um, actually, you said something about um, in your world the the ability to wield magic is is a rare talent. Um, which also happens to be a feature of um, Mike Cole's story, um, Weapons of the Earth. Uh, they're goblins in that, but it, it deals with the same thing. Um, there are some people, some goblins, uh, who have um, a greater talent or a greater ability to wield magic. Um, so, Mike, I was just going to talk to you about that story a little bit. And um, I mentioned in your introduction, it you write the Shadow Ops uh, series, and this uh, story takes place in that universe i wonder maybe for those people who aren't you know familiar with it if you could kind of walk us through just a thumbnail sketch of what the shadow ops universe is and how this story fits into it um the, the just a, one quick correction the story is weapons in the earth uh as opposed to weapons of the earth uh the, the shadow ops universe it j just works on the simple predication that magic comes back into the modern world and i won't i won't uh, belabor the point but the government clamps down on it um, because it's wild and uncontrolled and very dangerous, and it and it creates a military bureaucracy around it under the auspices of a of the army as an executive unit, and there and there are sanctioned military sorcerers, and there are the one thing that you must not do in the Shadow Ops universe is use magic on your own outside of the auspices of either the military or the National Institute of Health, and if you run, you're a selfer, and and most and the army spends most of its time tracking selfers down and dealing with them. Um, so, but the Shadow Ops trilogy tells the story almost entirely from two perspectives. One is a human perspective, and the other is a military perspective. It's, it's entirely focused on the warfighter. Um, and in Weapons in the Earth, the, um, in the Shadow Ops uh, trilogy, you do learn of an alternate magical dimension called the source where magic comes from. And the sentient indigenous folks there are the goblins. Um, and it's a pretty bald-faced allegory, and I, I'm betting Wes is going to be rolling his eyes here because he knows what I'm talking about, for our relationship with the Indij, um, either the Pashtun or Tajiks in Afghanistan that, that Wes was working with or the, um, the, uh, the Iraqis that I was working with and their relationship with foreign operating bases and combat outposts out there. Um, so I really focused on the human aspect of it and the military aspect of it. So when I did Weapons in the Earth, I really wanted to hammer home that point that the military story is about all aspects of it and told from all sides of it. One of the greatest military novels ever written is King Rat by James Clavell, um, and that's a POW story. So Weapons in the Earth is told from the point of view of the goblins, and it's told from the point of view of noncombatant prisoners. Yeah, and that's one thing we've hit on, uh, saying, you know, these are stories about the human angle. Um, and one thing I liked about your story is that there's differentiation within the race of goblins and there's differentiation of individuals. They're not this monolithic block. And I think, um, you know, you're starting to see science fiction and fantasy get away from that more, you know, where Vulcans are logical, orcs are evil. Um, and I just wondered if you could talk about that and if anyone else wants to jump in as well and just uh, talk about, you know, putting a little humanity into these um, characters that maybe in the past were seen very uh, two-dimensionally. So that's, that's, and that is an incredibly military experience, and I really hope Wes, um, sorry Wes, I keep singling you out here, but just we, we have such a shared experience. Um, but I hope Wes will chime in here too. But So there's a thing, there's a concept in military intelligence called human terrain, and um, it's a really great way to sum up the complexity Human beings are incredibly complex in their allegiances. And I'll give you a perfect example. Um, when I went into Iraq, I went in to fight al-Qaeda, which is a Sunni extremist organization. And I spent most of my time fighting Jaish al-Mahdi, which are 
the servants of Makat al-Sadr. They're, they're a Shia extremist organization um, that are, have nothing to do with the people I was going up against. Um, and uh, even in among the Sunni factions that I was going after, so, you know, you have al-Qaeda on one block and you have uh, a Sunni, uh, or rather a Baathist, Sunni religious, but, but Baathist secular uh, Saddam loyalist group on the next block. And you might have a guy who was a member of both. And that complexity is an incredibly integral part of the fabric of, of war and the fabric of, mil, of military relationships. So it, it, I really did work hard in trying to, and, I, and believe me, I didn't get close to the real complexity in portraying it in the story. And, uh, and I, uh, sorry, I'm getting a little echo. That's why I'm pausing here. And, I, and, I, and I'm, I'm almost positive that, uh, that if I was in a room and I could see you folks, I'd probably see heads nodding too, because I think it's, I think it's a pretty universal experience. People are really, really complicated. I, I also think it has a, it has a, a lot to do with the paradigm shift and how we know our enemy now. I mean, I'm thinking back to the 1960s and 70s when I was growing up watching movies and when John Ford introduced me to the Indian, the, the, the singular red creature who's not to get all white people. And I remember all those great World War II movies that they showed um, every Memorial Day weekend, Veterans Day, um, where where we have the Japanese and the Germans who are just these singular two-dimensional people who we are destined in the sense But I think now, especially in modern time, with information immediately in hand and our ability to simply think and understand what other people's points of view are, the multiculturalism of um, the people on the battlefield um, actually create so many more opportunities to, to, to write about them. I mean, I, it, I see a great trend in the last 10, 15 years where we're seeing popular fiction in popular movies and television shows where they're, they're representing Western American soldiers as being bad on occasion because we are bad on occasion. We're not all good guys. Just as um, when you see things from, from our enemy's point of view, say, say it's the folks that Mike was fighting or, or, or the Taliban that I was up against, they have a lot of valid points of view. It's just that, that we, can't, we can't politically agree on them at this moment because there's, there's too much at stake. So I think by, by understanding this and then by including it in the fiction, it renders it um, so much more uh, spectrally interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, Wes, let's uh, move to you. Uh, I, so your story is called American Golem. Um, and I really like that you use the golem. It's one of my favorite, I guess, you, I guess folk tales is the folk tale characters. Um, but yours is, it's very different uh, than, say, like the golem of Prague, which we're maybe familiar with. Um, you kind of weave all these different um Maybe weave isn't the right analogy, but sort of combine all these different elements of sort of um, military, uh, you know, DARPA style uh, weapons research and reincarnation. And um, you actually got some Native American ritual in there. I just wonder where that idea came from to kind of take all those um, sources and, and put them into the story and how that shape, maybe shaped the story. I think the Golem is, is, is really unrepresented in modern fiction, and I, I was very pleased to write something using the Golem. I had wanted to write the Golem story, but you know, like most of us, you know, we're busy and contractually writing stories and others and working forward, and you just can't pull yourself aside sometimes to write what you kind of want to write. Um, so, when, so when John contacted me and the opportunity came to write a military fantasy story, I knew immediately that it was going to be a Golem. And once I devised what type of golem it is, um, the golem wrote the story. Uh, it was, it was, it, the writing of the story was easy. I knew who, who he was and, and how he was going to be created. To make it distinctly American, I, I of course, had to set the creation here in America. And, and to me, there's nothing more to think about North America than, you know, the American Indian. And I, I really wanted to bring that into it as well. All right. Well, let's, uh, Linda, let's talk about your story. Um, it, uh, the way home. 
So I don't want to give too much of the story away, but it's um, like I was talking with Tanya. It's very rigorous in how its magic system works. And it even really the plot turns on sort of the the rules of the universe. And um, I know you mostly write science fiction. And um, I just wonder, I guess Wes said, you know, once he had the golem that wrote the story, was this a case of once you establish the rules of this world, the story just fell into place or is it the other way around or how did that work? You know, that's a, it's a good question for most of the things I write because by the time I'm well into them, I usually don't even know where they came from. Um, this one, I know John had asked me to write the story and um, he was, he seemed kind of concerned at the time. You know, I was very enthusiastic. I said, Oh yeah, I want to do this because I've been um, writing science fiction, which is set in the very near future, and um, this just felt like something completely different. So he, he, he comes back and he says, now, this has to be fantasy, okay? And you say, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, that's fine. That's what I want to do. And um, I noted later on just rereading the story right before it was published that it actually does read like a science fiction story, even though, despite the, fan- the fantastical setting. Um, but part of that's just because the, the magic is, is separate from the soldiers themselves. They get thrust into this environment where they don't know what's going on and they need to figure it out and they need to figure out what those rules are that you were talking about or they're not going to survive. So it, it approaches it very much as um, both a problem-solving kind of a story and a, and a psychological pressure story just to see that explores the way that people react under very intense pressure. So, um, you know, what came first? I, I think I just had this general, the general idea of how I wanted to set up the story and just, just took it from there. Yeah, for well, what it's worth, I, uh, I, I wasn't, I wasn't particularly uh, concerned about uh, Linda's, Linda not writing a fantasy story. Uh, you know, I, I was, I was, I was emphasizing that to everyone uh, just because. Uh, I was I was worried that uh, people were going to hear military and automatically fill in science fiction and, and skip over the fantasy part. And you know, I, I, so I was just really trying to hammer home to everybody, like, no, it's got to be fantasy, not not science fiction. You know, um, and uh, actually, I saw I saw at least one review that was that was that mentioned that that some science fiction snuck in here, and uh, I, I'm not sure what story they're referring to. I mean, um, you know. Linda says that hers kind of reads like a science fiction story, but I mean, I think it's clearly fantasy. Um, I mean, maybe, maybe the, maybe the Django Wexler story could be considered science fiction. I don't know. It feels like fantasy to me. So, um, but anyway, uh, yeah, I just, uh, I, I, I didn't think that, that Linda in particular, uh, was going to write science fiction instead of fantasy. I just, I was, I really wanted to make sure that everyone knew it was supposed to be fantasy because, uh, yeah, I didn't want to allow any science fiction in. I, I just thought that was pretty funny when you back with that. <laughs> But all the stories seem like fantasy to me, so I don't know which one either. (laughs) All right, yeah, and uh, well, thanks very much. And in closing, I just wanted to maybe ask everybody if we could go around, take turns, and uh, you know, if everyone can name a a favorite military fantasy uh, book, movie, television show, Victorian Magic Lantern uh, slide, uh, whatever, uh, whatever comes to mind, just a a favorite of yours that you might want to put out there and recommend to listeners. All right. Well, I'll, I'll go first. Uh, you know, Mike mentioned uh, the name of Novik Temerar books earlier, and I, and I, I would second that recommendation first of all because uh, I mean those are great, and especially like you said, His Majesty's Dragon, the first one, or is it his or hers? I can never remember. I think it's his. Right? His, yeah. his, yeah. Right. I, I I called it the wrong thing for a number of a number of times when I when I first came out because I just I don't know. I'm used to the queen being over there instead of the king, you know, uh, but. Uh, in addition to that, um, I, my other big recommendation isn't particularly a, a military fantasy thing overall, but um, I really, really love the battles in uh, the Avatar uh, series, like so Avatar Legend, uh, Avatar uh, the Last Airbender, and Avatar Legend of Korra. I just like love, I love, love, love the the magic system, and when they actually get into the battles in in the in those two television series, like that's just some of my favorite uh, military fantasy that I, that I can think of of all time. It's just it's it's just it's just great. I mean, the characters are all great and everything too, and I love like the plots and everything of of the series as a whole. But 
specifically, the military engagements on those shows are just great. And I mean, you know, maybe I, I don't know if they're realistic or anything. I mean, maybe maybe the. Well, I can go next. Um, I, I wanted to mention um, Kate Elliott's series, Crown of Stars. It's not generally regarded as a military fantasy, but got plenty of military in it. Lots of battles of different sides, and uh, lots of other things going on too. Of course, it's a it's a seven novel series. So it's got a lot of room. But, again, Kate Elliott's Crown of Stars. Well, I don't think this has to be recommended to anybody who's actually listening to this, but um, I absolutely think that Mike Cole's Shadow Ops universe took contemporary <laughs> fantasy in a place it has never been before, and I personally mm-hmm. would like to thank him for that. <laughs> um, also, it, they're terrific books. Thank you. I, I, uh, I Thank you very much. Um, I, uh, I'd like to call out Joe Abercrombie's The Heroes, um, which is uh, an intimate dissection of a single battle that just takes place mm-hmm. over a few days. Um, and uh, it, 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 uh, it really is an amazing book and was a huge, huge influence uh, for my third novel, Breach Zone. Uh, if you notice that that book is, is, a, is a, a dissection of a single battle, it's largely because of the influence I had from Joe Abercrombie and The Heroes. You know, I was going to mention Joe Abercrombie too, for, for, for not only heroes, but for all of his books. You know, I, I, I find that his use of, of, of Von Clausewitz, um, and, and asymmetric warfare is, is really just a study in how, how to do things right. But, to share the two seminal books for me, um, that's actually military science fiction. That's Joe Haldeman's Forever War and that's Lucia Shepard's Life During Wartime. Both of those, both of those deal a lot with the toll that war takes on people and the toll that war takes on those um, not directly involved, which I think is something that we're seeing more and more in our fiction. Well, and also someone mentioned Glenn Cook. I think it was John mentioned Glenn Cook's mm-hmm. uh, books before. And, and one of the things that makes them so terrific is, is that I don't think there's a hero in any of them. They are all not particularly pleasant people. They're just very three-dimensional, non-heroic people doing a job and schlepping along mm-hmm. and Excellent. Well, I want to thank everybody for being here today to talk about the book. It's Operation Arcana. It is out now in paperback from Bain, wherever fine books are sold, and also online, of course. Thanks to uh, John Joseph Adams, the editor, and contributors Tanya Huff, Mike Cole, excuse me, Mike Cole, Weston Oaks, and Lena Nagata. Thank you all for being here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Great, thank you. If I could throw one thing in there, um, um, if people want to get a taste of the book, if they go to johnjosephadams.com slash operation dash arcana, um, there's interviews, there's links to interviews with the authors, there's a few, there's links to where you can read a, a few of the stories for free, there's information about the contributors and everything, so you can sort of check check that out and, and get a sense of what the book's like. I mean, if you need more of a sense after, talk, after hearing us talk about it for an hour. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, excellent. Thank you. David Drake is the archetype of the archetypical Bane writer. Been here from the start, along with Jim Bane, of course, defined much of the tenor of what we do here at Bane Books. Dave is the creator of numerous novels and series, including the best-selling Hammer Slammers military science fiction series, and more recently, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy series. He's also the co-author on a host of series, ranging from the Belisarius novels with Eric Flint to the General series with S.M. Sterling, Eric Flint, and yours truly, Tony Daniel. He is also the co-author of the Citizen series, which he writes with John Lampshead. Now out at Booksellers is the second entry in that series, Into the Maelstrom. He's a prolific short story writer, and much of his early work is collected in Night and Demons, recently out from Bain. Dave is a graduate of Duke Law School. He's a Vietnam vet, where he served in the 11th Cavalry Black Horse Battalion, and he also reads Latin for pleasure. Uh, Hi, Dave. (laughs) Hi, Tony. Uh, Tony asked me to read a Marshall poem, and so I got my copy of Marshall off the shelves. That wasn't exactly (laughs) what I intended, but it's even better how it turned out. uh, So this is Marcus Valerius Martialis, who was a first century A.D. Roman poet. Uh, I frankly didn't expect to be asked to do this, but so long as I was. And I picked one, it's been decades since I, I took my Marshall off the shelf, but 
I picked book four, uh, number 18, and um, I'll try reading it. What is, um, can you tell us a little bit about the, I mean, I know that Marshall is known for epigrams, is that? Yeah, yeah. Basically. That's, uh, that's um, 12 of his 14 books of poems are epigrams. And uh, one is of little nothings. And another is actually intended as tags for uh, for gifts. So you would hire a marshal to write a, uh, a little frequently joking tag for the honeyed dormice that you were given you were giving to a client for the Saturnalia, this sort of thing. Um, in a few cases, we don't have any idea what he was actually. Uh, what the gifts were intended, uh, but <clears throat> this is one of the uh, the ordinary epigrams, and uh, I was looking through it trying to find one on Ariadne uh, left on uh, the the shore of Naxos. Uh, couldn't find it, but I ran into this one. As you know, there's 300 pages to go through in uh, my <laughs> Oxford classical text, and there's no index. Well, there's an index of first lines, which isn't terribly handy if the word you remember from the poem is Ariadne, and it wasn't under that, or under Bacchus, or uh, anything else that I could find. So I just grabbed this one. As I say, it's book four, number 18. And I will... I did a translation, which I will read after I do the Latin. Huawecana pluit whipsani porticolumnus, et marat et siduo lubricus imbra lapis, in jugulum pueri qui roscere tecta subiba, decerit hiberna praegravis unde gelu, cumqua peregis est miseri crudelia fata, Habuit in calado wulnera ucrotoner, quid non saiwa sibi woluit fortuna licera. Aut ubi non mors est, si jugulatus aquae. So, it was raining near the entrance to the portico of Agrippa, and the stones were slippery from the constant downpour. A boy ducked under the dripping overhang, as he did so, a huge mass of winter ice plunged down into his throat. After the sharp point had accomplished the poor fellow's cruel death, it melted in the hot blood from his wound. Is there nothing beyond the cruel whims of fortune? Where is not death lurking if your throat can be cut by rainwater? So it, it's not a very military poem, but... But we do get oh. the blood and gore, <laughs> and and we do have the word bucro point. So that might is that perhaps the first instance of somebody being killed by an icicle in a in a story. Uh very possibly. The I classic know, mystery. Uh, well, I, I know of a couple examples from eighteenth um, century literature. Uh, John Gay, and I think uh, Doctor Johnson has one also. Well, I may be confused. There's also, Gay also has one about uh, a boy being swept under the ice of the Thames and being visible through the ice, uh, you know, dead. Um, but but this, this is certainly, this is the earliest um, icicle murder case I can think of, and it's, as I say, attributed to fate. Cruel fate. Well, thank you, Dave, for reading that for us, and we'll uh, uh, reflect on it as we go through our, our lives. And now here is another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at audible.com now. 
If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's the setup for what's coming up. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents. In each generation, more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their powers for good, but some don't. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy, the type of active that controls the force of gravity. Jake is good at it. Jake has been recruited by a mysterious secret organization of actives, the Grim Noir, who are dedicated to seeing humanity through a possible magic-based apocalypse, an apocalypse that seems to be accelerating toward a terrible finale. Here is Bronson Pinchot with this portion of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. F.S. Bulldog Marauder The sky was black with rain. Clouds roiled and lightning crashed. The winds were blowing at terrible velocities, but Southunter's magic was cushioning them from the very worst. I think we've lost them, Barnes said. Sullivan was standing at the very front of the glass bubble, watching the energy. We have to go after it. We don't even know where it is, Southunder said. He was sitting in his captain's chair, rubbing his eyes with his palm. They'll take it right to the chairman, and one minute after he puts it together, America is gone. We need to at least warn them. Barnes turned around from his console. Who'd believe you? I don't believe you, and I'm sitting right here. Southunder rose. I can at least alert the Grim Noir. They know people. Maybe they can... Hell, I don't know. Start evacuating. I still remember the spell. I just haven't done it for so long. Damn Pershing's orders. I never spoke to anyone just in the off chance that the Imperium would find it. He went to the wall and pulled down a small round mirror. Mr. Parker, go to the galley and get me some sea salt. It's been a long time, hiding, all for Black Jack and all for nothing. We'll make it right, Sullivan vowed, even though he had no idea how. UBF Tempest Francis was biting his nails. The sun was down. They were on the outer edges of a bad storm. The teleradioscope was still getting a return telling them the approximate location of the Tokugawa. It was moving west again, heading for Japan. This was their last chance. They were moving along at full speed to intercept. The boarding party was below. He wished he had more time. Then he'd personally speak to every one of them, knight, mercenary, and other. The Tempest wasn't designed for such things, but Lance had told them that they'd land right on top of the giant Tokugawa, lower the ramp, and it would be just like parking at an airport. He had a sneaky feeling it wouldn't be that easy and suspected that Lance concurred. Either way, he'd be joining them at the last minute. Faye had joined them in the cockpit and was wandering around, looking at all the flashing lights, remarking on how pretty they were, and he felt a little nervous that she might start pushing buttons just to see what would happen. She was geared up for battle, armed with a short Auto 5 shotgun and wearing crisscrossed bandoliers of brass buckshot shells. Her hair was tied up, and Francis realized that he was staring at her, so he went back to trying to be a leader for the UBF men. He didn't like the idea of her going in with the boarding party one bit, but Lance had been adamant. They needed every warm body they could get. Pain shot through his ring finger as if it had gone molten. Lance had been talking to the navigator and he jerked as his ring ignited too. He'd never felt one burn so hot. It was like a knight was trying to contact everyone. The signal was so strong that all the grim noir in the world had to be feeling it. He shouted at the nearest crew member. Get me some salt. Lance started clearing maps from the navigator's table. I don't think I would have took the oath if I knew it was going to try and cook my fingers off, Faye said as she watched them make the circle. Dan Garrett had come running. The stubby man was so weighed down with extra ammo that he had a hard time climbing up the ladder. 
Heinrich faded through the wall and took his place off to the side, Francis could see that Heinrich's wrist was still bruised and discolored from where Delilah's magically enhanced grip had crushed it in the morgue. A minute later the circle was complete and light from the shining disc filled the little room. He did not recognize the grim noir in the circle. He was older, weathered, totally bald with wrinkles around his eyes that suggested he was a man who spent a lot of time laughing and smiling, except those eyes were hard now and there wasn't an ounce of laughter left in him. Attention all grimoire knights. This is Robert M. Southunder, once of the Knights of New York. Former knight, came another voice with a French accent, and the circle suddenly shifted to another man that Francis had never seen. A disgraced knight turned to brigandrie. The vagabond returns, said a gray-haired woman. She sounded English. Francis had never seen so many people communicating through a magic circle before. The background noises told him that there had to be many others listening as well. The power drain to the creator had to be enormous. Stick it, Harriet, Southunder said as the circle flew back to focus on his face. There's no time for your politics. The chairman has the geotel. There were collective gasps from every corner of the world. Preposterous, bellowed someone else. A hundred other people started to talk, and now the circle was spinning so fast that Francis thought he was going to be sick. There was a brain-piercing whistle. Faye pulled her fingers away from her lips. Y'all shut up and let the man talk already. Jeez Louise. The circle returned to South Under. Thanks. I can't keep this up for long. The chairman recovered the last piece. Did we ever find where they'd mark New York? There was a spinning chorus of negative replies. Then we've got to assume that he'll fire it at the same place as last time. We need to evacuate the eastern seaboard. Contact the president, the army, do whatever you have to do. Things have changed since you left, Robert, the Frenchman said. Actives have no favor in the halls of politics. They will not listen to us. Then get off your asses and do something, Southunder barked. Live up to your damned oaths for once. Lance cut in. Where's the chairman? Everybody knew he'd want to be there when it was used. I don't know. The device was in the Northern Marianas, Southunder replied. There was another voice from behind him, a deep rumble, and a large, beard-stubbled face pushed past Southunder. Lance, Sullivan asked. Yeah, we're not far from you. We're tailing the Imperial flagship now, Francis said. He'll fire it from his flagship, sure as hell, Sullivan said. That's his style. Give us your coordinates. Francis signaled for the navigator, who had recoiled in panic from the glowing, levitating magic circle. He really had to remember that not very many people got to see stuff like this. The next face that appeared in the circle was more recently familiar. It was Isaiah Rawls. It looks like I'm the senior member of the council listening, so it falls on me to do this. Stand down, knights. That is an order. Do not, I repeat, do not attack the Tokugawa. Are you mad? Dan shouted. His voice made Francis reel. Dan was under such stress that he could barely control his power. The anger in there was palpable, and Dan's emotions made Francis want to pull his forty-five and shoot Rawls right between the eyes. You couldn't stop us when we were going to do it for one person, let alone ten million. Let them try, Isaiah, the Englishwoman said. We've nothing to lose at this point. We have everything to lose, Isaiah was furious. You must let the flagship continue toward Japan. That is an order. Sullivan's voice was utterly cold. Captain Southunder, could you please ditch all these other bozos and just talk to my friends? Gladly. Isaiah began to scream. No, you must! The circle spun back around to the sweating south under. That's much nicer, but I can't hold this much longer. Location of the flagship. 
The UBF navigator read off a bunch of what seemed like random numbers to Francis, but South Under just nodded, doing the math in his head. We can be there within an hour if I mangle the winds from here to Australia. Us too, Glantz said. See you there. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz, and to mighty and honorable Bain Consulting editor David F. Sherrad for hosting our interview this week. And a shire-tastic display of Gandalfian fireworks along with a miniature spaceship shaped like Cthulhu, which is only a play toy, but still eats your soul, to editor John Joseph Adams and the story authors of Operation Arcana, Arcana, which is now out at booksellers everywhere. Please join us next time, here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars, 